Thank you, Rod. Good morning, friends of Crossroads. It's a joy for me to be here. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the elders, as well as those who are on live stream this morning. Glad we could all be joining together and praising our God. As Rod said, my name is Ed Kingma. I'm an elder here at Crossroads. I'm up here this morning to share with you the heart of the elders. But before I get to that, I would like to share a few personal thoughts with you. You may recall Rod's words last week about spiritual gifts. I believe he stated something like he did not feel gifted in speaking and communicating. Well, if that is Rod, it truly begs the question, what am I doing up here? For everything I have to say this morning, I assuredly do not have the gift of just speaking it out. Rod also said he believes that a person's spiritual gifts can change. If I ever had the spiritual gift of speaking, my belief is that it has certainly left me. Hopefully replaced by something greater. My apology to you today is that I have to read my prepared notes. So I continue. Yes, I am an elder. I qualify. I have white hair. These days, everyone is in a category of some sort. I have to admit that I am definitely in a category, and because I am in such an undeniable category, I'm usually not here on Sunday mornings at the live services. I'm sure there are some of you who out, out there who might think this is a little foolish, but it is my personal choice that I have made. You see, along with my age, so we're not going to go there, I have had cancer twice. My dear wife, Nancy, has had cancer once. Three times, God has brought us through a cancer journey and healed us. For that, we are very blessed and thankful. Praise God. While it does not put us into a state of fear, it does put us in a position of caution in these times of COVID-19. We are at risk. We have to respect it. We miss being here. We miss our dear friends and worshiping together, but we are thankful that we have the option and technology of live stream so we can at least join in. As I mentioned, I'm here to share the heart of your elder board today. Some of you may wonder what it is we actually do. We do not seek the spotlight or the stage. Crossroads is an elder-led, staff-run church. Our goal as an elder board is for our church to pursue God and live out his word. Our church's middle name is Bible, and we preach that word every week. Please know that we deeply care for each of you, and our sole desire is to point us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and everything that we do here. I will talk a little bit about the elders. In the midst of these chaotic times, we are here. We haven't gone anywhere or hidden. We are regularly praying for you. We've been doing the hard work of seeking God's direction through the Holy Spirit during this season and will continue to do so. This includes seeking God not only how he would call us together in the immediate future, given the present realities of COVID-19, but also moving forward into the unknown future. During this time, we have called our body to gather as you are comfortable and able, individually, as families, in small groups, house churches, or in this space. Now we are opening up more services to gather in the large. We do not claim or pretend to make this open service venue perfectly safe for everyone. We just ask that you make wise decisions and choose what is best for you and your family along with reminding you of Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself and everything that that entails. We want to shepherd our flock with a call to those who are struggling or whose spiritual needs are not being met. We want to hear from you. How can we better serve and shepherd those on the margins and those who fall through the cracks and even those who, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, choose not to engage? How can we become stronger together 
to fend off the enemy who lurks and prowls around us like a wolf. We want to be unified in our body for each other and to care for each other well. Having said all this, we as a board continue to watch and monitor what is happening in the world around us. We remain steadfast that the spiritual battles that have always existed may be taking other forms now and in the future. We are aware things have changed and may continue. We as elders are praying that God will continue to lead us with his spirit for whatever comes and when it comes. We are mindful that we have an enemy who is real, and our destruction and ineffectiveness is his goal. He will attack through our complacency, divisiveness, or hostility. We need to engage in spiritual warfare against this enemy. We need to check ourselves. Are we exhibiting Christ and the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to each other and a watching world. The issues of our day are extremely political and polarizing. Therefore, we must operate in love and unity, building each other up in the Lord. What does all this mean in our response? We as elders and staff at Crossroads want to strongly urge the body to get for more firmly connected in some capacity as branches to the vine. We are encouraging a more formal connection by getting on the email list, letting us know who you are, or getting involved in ways that make the big small. This would enable us to connect with you quickly and easily as need be. We need to be connected at a deeper level. The way this has been done historically at Crossroads reflects a large part of our DNA. We have been gathering in small groups, house churches, and purposeful communities. While we are used to gathering in large assemblies here in North America, we have not known or experienced the level of persecution seen in other parts of the world for centuries. It is, however, on our doorstep. Even the sheltering and restrictions put in place by authorities in this COVID-19 situation for health reasons can ultimately drive us apart physically and spiritually. But COVID is only a small part of what we face. Other potential threats are so-called hate speech crimes. Um, which fly in the face of what we believe here at, uh, at Crossroads. Repeal of church and nonprofit tax exemptions and deductions could cripple ministries. There are many forms of prejudice and persecution creeping up around us. If our doors would be forcefully closed or our worship and gatherings forbidden, are we prepared to carry on the work of the kingdom and continue to build his church? This is not to instill a foreboding fear or doomsday scenario, but rather a wake-up call to be both vigilant and prepared for the battle that the enemy wants to cast upon us. We trust in our God to equip us. This is a call to the body of Crossroads by the elders to join in and become a part of a small group or house church. Brian and his team are ready and eager to help you find that place. As James implores us, we are not to be just hearers. We are to be doers, fully engaged in and connected with fellow believers. You've heard it said many times that we at Crossroads are much more than Sunday public gatherings. Become a part of the real church of Jesus Christ. Live it out and be his witness in this lost world. Two things. Send us your email and contact information. Ask how you can become connected. I leave you with these words today from Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day comes, 
the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. On behalf of the elders, thank you for listening. We love you guys. Thank you, brother. Puts a smile on my face. You can always feel uh, a sense of security when there's when you're in the presence of strong leadership, and God has blessed this church with that. Um, I'm just I'm happy about this church. I'm happy about you and what God is making us into into. Um, this morning I was not planned to preach, uh, taken over for one of my friends who was, who was scheduled and just had to pull out for good reasons. Um, but I've, I've been assigned a text, which is our PS to the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the questions that this church asked, um, so many of them came in last week at the end of our services, and I only touched a few of them in the service. So we did do a podcast this week to answer more of those questions, that's on our website. Um, but today then, the next two weeks, uh, is a PS to this series on the Holy Spirit before we get into the Gospel of John. And like I said, I wasn't assigned it, but I can't believe I get to preach it um, because we're in 1 Peter 2. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2. If someone asked, who am I, what am I doing here, or probably a better way to ask it, who are we and what are we doing here, 1 Peter 2 would probably be the first text I'd go to. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Because like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the text it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and that stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumbled because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word for today. You can be seated. So let's just uh, start with a little bit of background. Uh, this is another letter that's written to some of these first churches that are sprouting up all over the Roman Empire. And that in and of itself is an amazing thing to think about. That from the outset, this Jesus movement could not be contained. Instead, it spread like a virus. All over the world, people are getting infected with the gospel. They're being rescued from the dominion of darkness. They're brought into the kingdom of light. They're forming then these communities that are called churches. And this is a letter written to these newborn churches. 
by Peter himself, who we know much about through the Gospels and the book of Acts. Now, one of Peter's main themes to the churches that he's writing to is the theme of suffering. In fact, every New Testament book is dealing with this theme of suffering. Why? Well, let's look in, in this book. 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14 um, is when this starts to pick up steam, this theme. Where, where Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove passionate for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. So you get a sense of some of the things that these believers are, go, are, are going through. They're starting to suffer. They have this fear of being armed of being intimidated. Uh, this picks up more steam in, in chapter 4, 12 through 14. And Peter says here, Beloved, do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So you're left wondering, what is this fiery ordeal? And, and then in chapter 5 and verse 9, he describes this fiery ordeal, the, the, this suffering. He says, the family of believers all over the world are all undergoing this same kind of suffering. So it's not just you, but it's, it, it's Christians everywhere. Now, almost all the scholarship thinks that this persecution that's coming to bear upon these Christians is not from a crazed emperor. That's still coming. The scholar says that this persecution is local. It's social persecution. It's everything that Peter talks about in his letter, the insults, the threats, the mistreatment, the character assassinations that locals are unleashing upon Christians, the ostracizing, the canceling out. This is why Peter, right at the outset, addresses them as exiles. Because they have literally been exiled. They've been cut off from their local communities. Now, as I think about this, in my opinion, social persecution sometimes hurts more than national persecution. It's one thing for an emperor or a dictator like a Nero or a Domitian who hates me and wants to kill me. I mean, that, that, that could be kind of scary. But I think it's a whole other thing when your own community, your neighbors, your friends, even family members, the people that you do life with, they are the ones who are insulting and condemning, ostracizing and canceling out. There's a, there's a whole other level of hurt to that. And this is the suffering that these early Christians are facing all over the world. So then I ask myself, well, what's behind this? Why is this happening? Why, why, why this social persecution? Well, to give your life to Jesus Christ in the first century is not just adding Jesus to the ten other gods that you believe in. The ancients were polytheists. So the, so the ancient would say something like this, I believe in Apollo when I need wisdom and revelation. I believe in Asclepius when I need healing. I believe in Athena when we go off to war. I believe in Artemis when, when, when I want fertility and, and safety for my kids. The god Nike uh, when I compete in sports. Aphrodite uh, in, in the realm of sex and romance. The goddess Roma when I want my business to prosper. The patron god of our city because it protects and prospers our city. So when you came to Jesus Christ in the first century, there's only one way. It is to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Because that is who Jesus claimed to be. And therefore, to make Jesus your Lord means that you would have to forsake all these other gods, which had huge implications social implications. What happens when you stop your weekly attendance at the temple to perform your civic duty? I mean, the ancients were highly superstitious. 
And depending on, on, on what God you were, you were worshiping, uh, your act of worship could be anything from prayers and sacrifices to having sex with a temple prostitute to gorging on raw meat and getting drunk at a guild feast to offering incense and putting the ash on your forehead as a mark of your allegiance to that God. I mean, when I read 1 Peter 4, 3 to 4, look at what it says here. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the pagans, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and orgy, all rooted in idolatry. And in all of this, they, the local community, is surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. They hate you. They talk bad about you. They exclude you. They cancel you out. Why do they do that? Because of the stuff of verse 3. And see, when I look at verse 3 here, I think, well, this just describes a lifestyle. No, in the ancient world, that is their spirituality. That is how the gods are worshipped. Through lust, sensuality, orgy, drunkenness, parties. And see, this is why the Christians in the first century are called atheists, because these Christians stopped believing in the gods and participating in their perverse forms of worship. Well, trust me, to the locals, this is far worse than not wearing a mask at the grocery store. Some of you thought that was funny. <laughs> it was your civic duty to appease the gods, to not upset the gods, or the gods will get angry. So when you pulled out of all the ways in which the gods were worshipped, from the temples to the feasts and the holidays, Christians are putting other people in danger. So what happens when a Category 4 hurricane hits your city and your city is demolished and people die? The gods must be angry, those Christians. It's their fault. And this is why they're being insulted and ostracized, exiled, cut off, canceled out, because they stopped worshiping the gods. But at a deeper level, light is confronting darkness, and darkness hates the light and is doing everything it can to snuff the light out. And that has been going on and continues to go on. In our day. Now listen to what Peter writes. Verse Peter 2, verse 1. Therefore, church, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Get rid of it. And first he wants to, re he's telling them how to respond to this. And he's basically telling them, look, we don't act like the world. We don't get angry. We don't repay evil for evil. In fact, he's going to hit that theme in this book. He's calling them to be consistent, to be authentic, genuine. And he says, be careful with your mouth. Don't you dare slander anyone. Don't blog. Facebook. Then he gives them the reason for why they need to be this way and how they can be this way. And in verses 2 to 8, what Peter does is he provides this, literally in six verses, maybe the richest biblical theology on the temple in the Bible. Because he starts off by saying this. He says, you are stones that make up a house. Well, this is more than just any house. Because stone in the Old Testament is another name for God's House. This is why stone is so often in Jewish names, or Stein, the German form of stone. I mean, because stone is more than a stone. Stone to them is 
a name for the house of God. That's why in verse 6, see, I lay a stone. God isn't just laying a stone. God is building his house. And where does he build his house? He builds it in Zion. And Zion is the spiritual name for Jerusalem. More specifically, Zion is a, a mount which is in the center of Jerusalem called Moriah or Moriah because that's where God's house stood. See, I lay a stone. I build my house on Zion. Now, in the ancient world, when you built anything, the first stone that was laid was called the cornerstone. Because the whole building then would be built on that stone and would be built off of this foundational stone. Jews to this day believe that the first stone that God laid when he created the world was Zion, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah. And that the rest of the world then was built on this cornerstone. So when God later in the story builds his house, he lays that stone, his house, on this cornerstone of all creation on Zion, on Mount Moriah. And this is why one of the most popular names, too, for God's house, for the temple, is Ha-Mahom, which means the place. Because Ha-Mahom is both the place of the stone, God's house, but it's also the cornerstone on which the whole world is built. Ha-Mahom, the place. In fact, the first time where Ha-Mahom, the place, and stone come together in the biblical story, I mean, it's... It, 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 it's a remarkable story. It's in Genesis 28. It's when Jacob's life has just become this living hell. He just cheated his brother Esau. His brother Esau wants to kill him. So Jacob has to set out on this journey away from home, from everything that he loves. And his first night away from home, when his life is completely falling apart, there he is, all alone in the dark, and the text says this. It says, Jacob came to a certain place. But it literally reads, Jacob came to the place. In Hebrew, he came to Ha-Mahom. And what did he do there? He put his head on the stone. This isn't just any stone. This is the, the stone, the cornerstone. And he falls asleep, and he dreams of a stairway that comes down to him, to the very place where he is lying. And the stairway leads to heaven itself. Jacob is dreaming of heaven. Heaven has been opened up, and it's coming down to him via the staircase with angels ascending and descending upon it. And then it reads... It says, and the Lord stood above it. And so many read this to mean that standing at the top of the staircase, and this would be so dramatic for Jacob, is the Lord. But the it doesn't refer to the staircase. The it refers to the stone that Jacob's head is lying upon. So standing above that stone, right over Jacob is the Lord himself. And this is why the Jews call the temple the stone. Because the, the temple is all this dream. It's the gateway to heaven. It, it's, it, it, it's heaven coming down to earth. It's where God descends his staircase and where God lives with us, where he dwells with us on earth as he is in heaven. That's why when Jacob wakes up, he says, what I said to you earlier today, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And then he calls that place, that stone, Hamahom, he calls it Bethel, house of God. And at this moment, Jacob's radical transformation begins because he has met with God, and he will now walk with God, because God is real to him, and more importantly, God is with him. And we know from the biblical story then how Jacob becomes Israel, and how Israel became a nation, 
And then how later in, in the story, God lays a stone in Zion. He builds a house on that stone, the cornerstone. And how for generations, God pe- God's people came to the stone to meet with God. Experiencing Emmanuel, having come, coming down and glory filling them. But sadly, you keep reading the story and that stone became an afterthought to them because God's people soon sought other stones and other trinkets and the stuff of this world. And God's house becomes a wasteland, so God allows the Babylonians to come in and destroy it. And yet it's into this devastation and this wreckage that God once again promises a stone, his house. That's why... Peter here is quoting Isaiah 28, where it says, see, I will once again lay a stone in Zion. But here's the surprise. This time, this stone won't be a building, an it. It's going to be a person, a he. And Peter quotes Psalm 118, where it says, the stone that the builders rejected, this is not an it, this is a he has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them to fall. That is not an it, a building. That is a person. In fact, Jesus is going to quote these verses over and over again. Why? Because he is the stone. He's the staircase. He's the gateway to God. He is heaven come down to earth. He is the Lord who stands over us, who's with us. Look at him. Do you know him? Have you encountered him? See, I've always preached that Jesus is the temple to end all temples. He's the priest to end all priests. He's a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. But you know what? I got that wrong. Because look at verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. We're the temple. We're the priests. We're the sacrifice. This this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Because here's what it's saying. Together, we are being built into God's house. Collectively. Collectively. We are the stones that make up the stone right now. And there are so many Christians, and I think part of the problem is a lot of our praise music today and the lyrics are me, I. And therefore, we, we just think that way about everything, including God and even our theology uh, is, is all centered on me and I. And, and so we start to think, well, God lives in me. I think you'd be shocked how little the Bible says that God lives in you or in me. The Bible says God lives in us. Us. Even Paul, when, when he develops this this metaphor himself when he talks about us being the temple of the living God he says you but that you is not you singular just like the you in verse 5 is not singular it's plural it's you all together collectively think about what Jesus says he says when two or three of you are gathered together I'm with you It's almost like he's begging us to realize that when he's with us, it's when there's at least two or three of us. Now listen, I'm not pushing this to the place that God isn't with us when we are absolutely alone. Don't think I'm going there. 
But I do believe the presence and the glory of God is in us. And to the degree that he's in you as an individual stone in God's house is to the degree that you are a stone in that house. Now, the implications of, 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 of all this are massive. If we want to find God, if we want to experience God, if we want to know God, if we want to see God high and lifted up, if we want to know his power, then we need to stop being isolated stones and we need to become a stone in God's house, in the assembly of God's people. God lives in us. God's glory is made manifest in us and through us. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my friends told me this probably 20 years ago, and it has stuck with me. And I, in fact, I've embraced it because Martin Lloyd-Jones was maybe the greatest preacher of the 20th century, um, preaching in London at a time when Technology was starting to be able to tape a sermon. You could record it. You could give that cassette tape to someone else. And you could... And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I want none of that. I don't want my sermon taped. And they asked him why. He said, because when you listen to a sermon in the privacy of your home and car, it's a hollow experience compared to when you hear God's word in the assembly. Because he said, God lives in us. God inhabits his people. And this is why Hebrews, it says, do not neglect the habit of assembling together. It's all over the Bible. In fact, this is what synagogue means. It means to assemble together. It's God's people gathered around God's word. When COVID-19 virus hit and started taking off in Israel, Israel shut down all their synagogues. There was a yeshiva that kept meeting. They confronted the rabbi. And here's what the rabbi said to them. He said, there's something more dangerous than our assembling. And it's this. It's us not assembling. And this is why Crossroads will fight to assemble. Both here on Sundays, in our, whether it's here, whether it's in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we are, both in the big and in the small, because God has mandated that we do that. And it is more dangerous for us not to do so. Because God says, that's where I live. That's where I manifest myself. In the presence of the assembly. And it's troubling to me how more and more Christians today think that they don't need the church. I mean, they, they say things like this, I like Jesus, but not the church. I know, I know you've heard that many times. And, and they think that they can find God in their, in their private spirituality. And then you add something like COVID-19 to this, and Satan has us right where he wants us in isolation as spiritual lone rangers. And this is not how God would have it. And I hear other Christians say, well, the church is just one more flawed human institution. Yep, it is flawed. <laughs> I mean, because the church isn't bricks and mortar, because the church is people, and people will always be flawed, listen, the deeper you go into the church, you will see all its flaws. But if you say this, I say to you, get off your spiritual high horse. Why are you too good to be around flawed people?
And the church is not just one more flawed human institution. It's the only institution on the face of the earth that Jesus started. The church is his idea. He birthed it. He launched it. He died for it. And it's the only institution, the only one on the face of the earth that is filled with the glory and the beauty and the presence of Almighty God. So that makes me ask, where's the glory? Where's the beauty of God? I mean, think about Jacob that night sleeping on that stone, that cornerstone, not even knowing it, and the heavens just being ripped open, and the Lord descending, and his very presence standing right over him. That is a powerful picture of the church. The heavens are ripped over, open, and God descending and standing over us is God himself. He's with us. He's in us. Or how about Isaiah? In Isaiah 6, I can't imagine, he, Isaiah's probably going to that house, that temple, every single day, but one day he goes there and he's in the temple and all of a sudden, the heavens are torn open, and God comes down. And Isaiah says, I saw God in all his glory. And he said, his train filled the temple. How about Pentecost? God ripping open the heavens, and heaven coming down, God coming down, uh, in fire and earthquake. And instead of God filling a building, the train of his robe fills his people. The church is not an institution. The church is not an organization. The church is not a club. The church is where heaven meets earth, where God comes down in all his glory, and where he lives, where the train of his robe fills his holy place. Do we want this? Do we long for this? We're not just content to do programs and pay bills and sit in rows. Isaiah 64 verse 1 says this, Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, and that the mountains would melt before you. You know, I think about a lot of the great awakenings in, in, in church history and the revivals that took place. Um, when, when people just became alive to God, when they repented of their sin, where God would just tear open the heavens and come down in all his glory, when his spirit would be unleashed. You know, not only did the church shake, but the whole world would shake. Because God didn't just bring healing and wholeness to his people, but he brought healing and wholeness to the nations through his people. You know what precipitates almost all these great awakenings? All these movements were ignited when people were cut to the heart and where they had a deep experience of God's grace. Because until that happens, this is just doctrine. We could just be an institution. But when we have a deep experience of God and his grace, the penny drops. And it goes from here to here. 
It goes from being all about me, where I have to build a staircase to God, to being all about God and all about grace. Grace is something that comes to me when I least deserve it. Like Jacob. You read the story and he is the least person deserving of grace. He's the worst person in the biblical story. He's greedy, he's selfish, he's a lying cheat. And I'm sure when he put his head on that pillow, he wasn't even haunted by what a normal person would be haunted by, of what a terrible person he has become. But think about that dream. God comes to him, and God isn't at the top of the staircase saying, okay, Jacob, here I am. Come on, dude. Somehow you... you, you you're going to have to get up here to me. You're going to have to strive. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to play the part. You're going to have to earn your way to me. No, this is a staircase that's from heaven to Jacob. It's God who descends. And he descends into this dark place, into this dark soul. Because, Jacob, you can't reach me or get to me. I must come to you. It's all grace. Grace upon grace. Do you know it? Is it amazing to you? Because until grace is amazing, there will be no revival. And that stone, God's house, is where we truly encounter his grace. Because that other name... (laughs) For, for, for that stone, Hamachom, the place. The first time Hamachom is used in the scriptures is in one of my favorite texts in Genesis 22, where it says this, and Abraham rose up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, and he took Isaac, his son, and together they rose up, and they went to Hamachom, the place of which God had told them. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, and he saw Hamachom, the place from afar. And they came to Hamahom, the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And we know the rest of the story. Abraham's son was spared that day because one day God's son at that very stone wouldn't be. And this is why a few verses later it says, And Abraham called the name of Hamahom, the place. He called it Jehovah-Jireh, for as it is said to this day, On this mount, God will provide the lamb. That's grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is grace. And Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, until you know that you have been loved like this, everything you do will be selfish. But when this grace comes into our life and we are cut to the heart and we have a profound experience of it, Heaven comes down, and glory fills us. And not only does heaven fill us, but we now become heaven to our world. But that's next week. Let's pray. Amazing grace. (laughs) How sweet the sound. I saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God, would your grace be so utterly amazing to us? Because like Jacob... We are all so undeserving. 
but you are a God of grace. You come to us. You love us. You died for us. God, open the eyes of our heart that we could know that grace. In Jesus' name. Sorry about that. This is why Christ also gave us a meal to eat, because he didn't want us to just know it in our heads. The love of God that is in Christ, he wanted us to eat it and drink it so that we could taste and see that the Lord is good. And so if you brought your communion this morning or if you want to take communion, um, you can get it from the back there. But I want us today to take it and to eat it, asking God to revive us, that we would know his love. love. Nothing can separate you from this love. And he says, take and eat it. The love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, his body, which was broken for you, his blood, which was shed for you. And God, right now, for my brother, who was taken in an ambulance, I pray that he would be okay that everything we talked about today, God, that you would rip open the heavens. God, that you would come down. God, that glory and healing would fill my brother right now in his state, in Jesus' name.